So let's start today with talking about how, what we're living in uh, incredibly uh, challenging times. Uh, the economy is, seems to be a physical expression of the internal that we're going through, the internal turmoil. Um, there's really a big picture of suffering. Um, it relates to um, how you see us treat each other as a human species down to the global, to the personal. Um, how, do you, how do you see and what do you see happening right now to you, Abdi? It's a great question. Um, I would add the environment to that as well, for the way the environment is. You know, it's an expression of our checked outness. I mean, it's, it's all expression of our checked outness. That's one level of it. The other level is that I've never seen people waking up at the speed that they're waking up. But it's not all easy. It's not this sort of happy, hippy-dippy, patchouli, everyone's just kind of popping up. People are getting really creamed. They're getting their faces rubbed in it, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in their jobs. Um, you know, the abject terror which is the economy, which is the environment, which is everything that's going on on that level, is an external manifestation, as you say, of what's going on inside people's internals. Because we have this mass hypnosis going on where we actually keep, um, we help each other stay disconnected. So that's sort of coming apart. You know, I look at the generation now, people in their 20s and 30s who really have no option for their future. Um, the people that I treat anyway who are really being forced to ask questions that people weren't even asking um, 20 years ago or the baby boomers who've been sort of sleepwalking that egomaniacal aspect of it. So there's something really coming apart at the fabric of it for all of us. Um, this anxiety bit that me and you have talked about in the past, which we keep pushing away by being busy all the time, it seems to me people are finally questioning that. On some level, either they're checking out more, which is what you see on the street walking down there and one's got their head in their little iPhone, or they're actually sitting. I'm seeing people sit more. I'm seeing people pay attention to their diet more. There is an awakening of sorts that's happening. But again, it's happening through pain. It's not happening through spontaneous awakening. It's not this joyous experience for most people. It's... The number of relationships breaking up has been really profound these last couple of years or questioning of relationships. Um, and at the same time, there seems to be an ease with things. People seem to have struggled or struggling. Then on the other side of it, there's an ease with it, with the way life is, with the way their connection to their lives are. I, I kind of understand what you're saying, but do you not see there's a schism going on between the people who uh, are accepting the change and people who have enjoyed the fruits of the status quo and are not relinquishing anything at all, if they can possibly help it. Oh, absolutely. That's what I mean by the baby boomer thing. I mean, the baby boomer, which is a sort of very narcissistic existence, even though they think it, it's not. I mean, it's very interesting. You talk about the status quo. Some of the biggest proponents of the original change in this country in the 60s, late 60s, became the biggest uh, defenders of the status quo. And they, there is such an amazing narcissism in that. I mean, I've only sort of tapped into this recently or just become observant over the last year or two of the narcissism of that generation, which is this very self-involved energy. But absolutely, they don't want to give that up. But remember, we're talking about two things here. I mean, first of all, to me, there's such a disconnection in that culture because that is the culture where greed is the best and nothing is enough. And even though it's wrapped in driving a Prius and having a sticker of peace on your Prius, it's still me first, everyone else last, which really propagates that idea that it's you, you're alone, you're separated, which just leads to pain and suffering. As opposed to the real ideal of that time, which is the oneness of things. But part of it is to remember these things have to go, really happen in steps. I mean, people don't wake up that quickly. I feel... Right now, we're at this precipice of this huge change, and it's going to be like 1968, 1969, where, you know, all these movements, whether you believe in them or not, you know, Occupy Wall Street and all that is a replay of that on a different level. But the piece that was missing then that's still missing now on some level is that people have to do the spiritual work with the psychological. You know, I think on one level... Part of what passes for apathy for the younger generation is action awareness that it's not about external change. 
Now, part of it is apathy, and you have corporate culture that is actually running world culture now, which is why it's so important to meditate on a regular basis and break that hypnosis. But people are actually realizing that it has to be an internal change. So what you're saying is definitely true. What I'm seeing as a clinician is that the mental health of that status quo protection is, is, is like a sociopath. I mean, it's, it's killing itself, it's killing everything around it, and it's killing the planet. I mean, it's, it literally is a sociopath. I mean, what are the corporations? People talk about corporations like they're individuals, but they're run by individuals. We're hoarding individuals. They're sociopaths. What's a sociopath? Someone who's so disconnected from the whole that it's the absolute most radical um, experience of me, for me, by me, psychotic, right? So, yes, you're right, but you only need a couple of percent of a system to shift for the system to shift. So it's not about dropping out of it, and it's not about trying to shift it without waking up yourself. The first and foremost is to actually find oneself. To me, that's the only thing that I can look at. And I think a big part of what intellectuals, anyway, have rebelled against spirituality is they see it as a form of narcissism, which actually it is, because a lot of the baby boomers are the people who followed it. So it's about both. It's about actually waking up and then applying it. Well, it's very true because you see the cult of the Prius being it's like I'm not doing any harm because I have a car that only uses 15% less energy than the one you do and therefore you're a bad guy and I'm a good guy um, it's funny also what you say about um, being a sociopath because I almost feel like I'm a sociopath sitting on the edge watching you know us blow up the planet I mean destroy the planet um, feeling disconnected um, I feel connected to more the source than I do people. I feel really like I'm on the edge watching a big play um, happen. Um, which is, you know, kind of disturbing to be to feel like a, a, a sidelined. But um, by dropping in, by doing practice, by meditating, you do connect through people with people and what we were talking about earlier about um, getting your face dirty um, through what's going on now the uh, 60s uh, generation who dropped the ball per se do you feel that they got to a point where you know rather than just blame them for all ill it may be a dying paradigm but rather than blame it, do you think they got to an age where they thought, fuck it, uh, it's, you know, it's easier to join the man and, uh, you know, there's no way we can actually physically really change? And if so, is there any difference now that the 30s, 20s generation now won't just get to an age where they go, this is impossible, and just buy in again? You bring up so many good points there. Let's take it one at a time. First of all, you're not a sociopath. Because a sociopath actually has no connection to source. The reason they're a sociopath or a psychopath is actually because there is total disconnection from source. It's totally the I. It's the capital I. And because of that, it's got absolute hunger. It can never, ever satiate that hunger. So what is these heinous crimes that they commit, whether it's sexual or taking someone's life or taking someone's money like we have Madoff recently, it's a total disconnection from source. Part of what you're describing, you see, there is this misnomer, which also I believe is sort of started with that whole bastardization of, let's say, the human potential movement of the 60s, that we do the spiritual work to actually get us further ahead in the world. Spirit couldn't give a fuck about you getting ahead in the world. This is the thing that people, it's such a confusing thing in our culture. People are using a butter knife to build a house. It's the wrong tool for the job. So yes, you can eat the butter or veggie oil, whatever your thing is, and that can give you nourishment, and then you can build a house. But to use that specifically for building the house, that's, that's the confusion here. Most of the craziness that passes for spirituality in our culture is this confusion between thinking connecting to source is necessarily going to help you in the world. Connecting to the source will make it easier to live in the world because once you feel your connection with everything, there's less fear. But that actually can do what you're describing, which is also takes away part of that anxiety. You see, most of what the greatest things in our culture has been given to us by anxious people, which we all are anxious. What are we anxious about? Dying. So we mask that anxiety by activity. Our greatest, you know, you take whatever, the Freuds, the Youngs, the greatest scientists, all these men and women, 
what are they really driven by? Underneath all that is anxiety. So that heroic journey that has given us the best things and the comforts and the signs is, is actually pushed by anxiety. When you have a Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta Maharaj, they're kind of hanging out, these great enlightened masters. They're not running out there doing things. I mean, Ramana Maharshi lived in, in Arunachala for all of his life. He never left because there's no need when you're connected to Source. So that's a personal choice. It's no right and wrong. So you can have that connection to Source and decide because you're one with everything, you feel love and you want to go out there and do things a certain way, be a businesswoman or a businessman or a healer. But that drive dry, drops off. So a bit, bit of a confusion. Spirituality will not help you in the world in that way. It actually will help you function at a less anxious state because of your connection, but there's a big confusion on that level. This is not about in any way making any generation feel like they're evil. I mean, it's unconsciousness, and there's levels of consciousness that we, we go to. So people did the best they could. About joining the man, well, I think, yes, usually generationally people do choose comfort over change till they get pushed into a corner. You know, there was a great analogy uh, Ramana Maharshi used to say about awakening that, and I'm going to mess this up, but basically that there's three types of people. One was, let's say, uh, wet charcoal. It takes a lot of heat to get it burning. And one is like dry wood, and that catches on fire quicker. And one is paper, where a little match will light it on fire. So that's also part of what's going on in terms of one's quest and how fast one catches on. Just a side note here to remember that we do know on an unconscious level that the game is up if we fully wake up. Because things won't have the charge they have. This is another important point, part of our resistance to awakening. We think, well, if I wake up, everybody's like running towards awakening, so they think in a spiritual path. Unconsciously, they know the game will be up. So what I mean by that? Think of if you have $20 in your pocket, or if you have $1,000 in your pocket. If you have $20 in your pocket, things have a lot more charge to them because you can't go buy everything. You have a thousand dollars in your pocket. Things have a lot less charge because you can actually go out and eat in the best restaurant or buy yourself a nice piece of clothing. So there is a charge in having less. So that's kind of the push and pull thing of the whole thing. Yeah. Did we hit all the stuff you, you could ask um, there? Yeah, I did hit you with a long list. Um, I might have. We may have skipped over something, but the thing that we're bringing up is the. Ability, the charge is really interesting because it also taps into the ability to feel, and that I think is what we, you know, we were talking about earlier before the, we were recording about how not having anything really makes everything feel a lot more important. Mm -hmm. um, survival is more paramount, mm -hmm. and also the any experiences you pick are a lot more weighted which is kind of exactly what you said, so you can erase this whole thing. <laughs> no, um, but I think what's really important is is by having less, you really do feel. Mm -hmm. And that's what that people are feeling, the, the pain, mm -hmm. because they're, they're, they're not being able to just sidestep. Mm -hmm. And connect, they're able to feel other people's... Uh, how we've pursued how we perceive people on the news mm -hmm. we're actually in third world countries we're actually able to not just perceive as something you can switch off now mm -hmm. I think that is going to be helpful for people connecting um, I don't know if there's a question there I'm just well I'll definitely comment on that I mean there's definitely a piece of that which is totally what you're saying I mean the beauty of we're talking and we're living in the states on America the beauty of this culture is always this um, constant optimism and the future but also the curse of this culture is that a lot gets pushed underneath that and that optimism is kind of coming down because you know things are pretty serious I mean looking at how for example the economy has been in this country for the last 10-15 years is such an externalization of what happens to us for example in relationships we can be in an abusive relationship or not fed. And everything is great. Everything is great. It's the media that keeps telling you everything is great. This is like your friend saying, yeah, I made everything is great. The mask is coming off. So now what you're saying, yes, we were being forced to feel the pain. So part of that is we're actually being forced to feel. 
It just happens that we shut things down. Like we function in this culture because of the media, usually at a very high frequency. What is fear? What is joy? It's like this very sort of electric energy. We very rarely just drop down to see how am I feeling. And that feeling seems so foreign to us because we don't have any experience with it anymore because we're constantly in this high-frequency energy. Part of these dips, what's happening with the economy, besides all the fear and anxiety that we're all feeling, we're actually feeling. So that's a great point that you're making. We actually don't feel, you know. But it's literally an externalization of what we do in our own lives. You know, what's going on here, for example, with um, the federal bank just basically printing money. You know, we just basically, it's okay, we're just going to print some more money, everything is fine. It's what we do in our personal lives. We're just going to act like everything is okay. We're dying of addictions. We can't drink the water. We can't, you know, eat the food. We can't breathe the air. Everything is fine. Just just keep going on. So that sort of fake everything is fine, that's being forced out of us. One thing that's very interesting that I'm observing with people, we're going from a third chakra to a fourth chakra, which is what it seems to be happening. So third chakra, you know, more survival to more of a heart space. But that heart space isn't running around hugging each other, although that'd be lovely and it can happen. It's more just also compassion towards ourselves. You know, people talk about, like you were saying before, we were talking about narcissism, this and that. You know, that's just lack of love. You know, we treat other people the way we treat ourselves. So the biggest problem is this lack of love towards self. We confuse um, love of ego with love of self. Love of self, which would be if I actually truly care for myself with a capital S, I can't but care for you because I really feel that connection, whether it's inherently conscious or not, it's real. Love of ego goes back to the source. So getting back to that point, all our culture at at this present time is driven by advertising and self Mm -hmm. and the competition with the others. Mm -hmm. You know, keep up with the Joneses, beat the Joneses. That's how we, you know, be better if you buy this. Basically, to get to a point where our heart chakra is actually functioning and we're all feeling more compassionate to each other, basically we have to destroy the whole construct that we're living in. How the hell can you see that happening? Great question. Um, First of all, you don't have to destroy it. It's actually becoming destroyed. So let's take a step back here. People who are actually interested in this topic... If they don't know about Edward Bernays, should go look up Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays was a cousin of Freud who took Freud's teaching and brought it into the States, to actually New York City, and used it for advertising. So in the 1900s, the American breakfast, for example, was just coffee and toast. And he was the person that started selling us eggs and bacon. And this basically got passed on to everything. So the advertising you're talking about is based on very deep psychological work. I mean, I feel like Edward Bernays did more with Freud's work than the Freudians did in a way because it's affected billions of people. So the first thing is to understand that, you know, you're against a system right now that does real-time MRIs, that studies your brain response to smells and to colors. So the advertising you're talking about is beyond what we think about in the press or the print or, you know, this is, you got the best minds in this world um, working on keeping you brainwashed. So how do you do it? You can't do it. That system is too big. The connection has to happen internally. But part of it is on some unconscious level, you have these two opposing forces. One is because of the media, because of the iPhones, you know, you walk down the street, people are constantly self-hypnotizing themselves. I mean, it makes Aldous Huxley look like a children's book right now the amount of fascism that's happening and people actually going and paying big money for these little things to hypnotize themselves. The flip side is people are actually asking questions. There are people who really, it's not feeding them. They might not know something is not right, but they know something's not right. So at some point, when you either can't afford to consume or you've consumed so much and it still doesn't scratch the itch, either you become sober, which is all addiction, or you sink down into it. You know, you can't worry about externally, it's my experience. You have to do your own work. You have to be out of need for help yourself before you help others. Um, a piece of this, by the way, that I'm seeing come up for a lot of people, I'm seeing a lot of my clients, it could be their lovers, gay or straight, it could be their family members or brothers or sisters. They're having a little bit of an awakening 
or at least awaken to the fact of exactly what you described, that, you know, this is not scratching the itch anymore. And they're so frustrated that they can't get their partner to see it or their brother or their best friend. Part of the thing right now is to actually put the focus on ourselves and realize we cannot change others. On top of it, we have to understand that ourselves, as well as others, we're very committed to our pain. Because it sounds very counterintuitive, but I can, I'm telling you as a clinician for decades, it's mind-blowing. I see myself and I see other people. We have to be okay with people being connected to their pain. They actually, it's, it's a friend to them. It's Again, it sounds counterintuitive, but if you look at these patterns that we have. So to answer your question again, to take it back to that, we can only focus on ourselves right now. I mean, external change does come from within. It takes time. We really are here for a limited period of time. It seems to be happening quicker and quicker, but we can only focus on self. And we have to get ground down to it. I mean, very few people just wake up and go, hooray, I'm going to drop all this stuff. We get the shit kicked out of us. We get hammered. We get the waves crashing on us over and over and over. And then we'll say, put our hands up, be like, I can't do this anymore. The second the wave goes down, we'll go right back to it again until we get hammered again. That's the gift of pain you know i don't really agree with the whole buddhist thing that life is suffering certainly life there's a ton of suffering but it's also there's a lot of joy but certainly there's that bit which pain and suffering is the only thing that can bring us to our knees for us to give up that other piece of it and the other thing we're talking about there is no right or wrong here you know what i mean it's like you can drive a prius don't drive a prius meditate don't meditate. there's no right or wrong here the question is what's serving you and then when we say what's serving you which you are we talking about you the ego well we definitely need shelter food this and that or you the spirit most people come to spirituality as a way of running away from the pain of the self so the small self the ego so they can't really function in the world so it's sort of their refuge but they're not really committed to it it's not a mature commitment that takes a long time so then the ego starts playing its own crazy stuff all the stuff that was coming up we were talking about it before with these spiritual communities now with these people doing all these crazy crimes and sex stuff it's the ego really hiding underneath spirituality and then asserting itself through that which is insanity which justifies anything so you just said about um you have these people coming to spirituality um do you find this for most it's maybe uh, a little bit like they want to take a, an aspirin or a band-aid when for, you know, let's say the expression of band-aid for a bullet wound basically they just want a quick fix they want to take their little bit of spirituality and then they want to move back to life as they knew it um, the hard job is to stay with it how, how do you perceive all this? well first of all it's not people, it's every person it's every person, myself included, you included. We come, who in their right fucking mind goes to spirituality, goes and sits his ass down? It's only out of pain, right? So again, except for the very rare individual that I have really not met, but I've read, read about in history books, who actually comes to spirituality? Spirituality, we come to it because we are in pain. But we actually don't want to do the work. It takes a long time to get the maturity to actually sit down and do the work. So yes, it is an aspirin. It is a salve for this very, very deep wound. And the other part of it is we live in a culture which thinks things are going to happen very quickly. And then the other confusing part is, as I said earlier, we actually think spirituality is going to help us in our world. So a lot of these weird spiritual sects right now, that sects which actually promise salvation in terms of finances, if you chant this chant and money will come to you, or if you do this meditation, you will do well. That's insanity. That's not the function of spirituality. I mean, yes, of course, you calm your mind. You can make you a better athlete. You can make you a better businessman. It's sort of just like yoga for, for business. Sure, if you're a calmer person, you do better in the world. But that's still not answering the question. I mean, what is spirituality? Spirituality is about really realizing the illusion that you're here forever, to understand that you are a finite being. All of this life is actually based on us pushing against anxiety right and then we do these heroic things and the heroic thing can be a healer spirituality can be a part of it being a making money having things named after you being in your family circle having kids these heroic acts unless they're examined are a way of actually having this denial of death 
again, anybody who's actually interested in this topic should read that book, which I talked about in one of the past um, podcasts called Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. It's one of the most genius books in terms of psychologically understanding how we push this away. So, yes, you're right. It is a self, but the wound is so deep. It's a cultural wound. Everything in our, in our culture is based on this denial. So if you can actually sit and make friends with that anxiety, then it actually gives you more of a freedom to be. And it goes back to there is no right or wrong. You know, we are living at a different time. We have to question everything. A lot of spirituality in our culture is based on cultures that are so different to us, at times that were so different to us, at a time when there wasn't a speed that's moving around, there wasn't this brainwashing that was moving around. That's your question? Yeah. Well, this brings up the point of, which may be a large question, what is spirituality for people? Um, when you say, uh, you know, spirituality, is it the sitting? Is it the meditating? I mean, when each facet of spirituality has been packaged and sold mm -hmm. to people as a product, mm -hmm. how do you find the one that's right for you? Um, how do you make sure it's not an ego-led package you're buying into, like The Secret or one of those things like, you know, mm -hmm. suddenly you'll be rich? When people think they're spiritual, sometimes they're just trying to salve their ego. Mm -hmm. What is spirituality in the sense of getting rid of all that? That's a tough one. Um, in our culture, you're absolutely correct. I mean, most of spirituality has been sold as that. I would say the first thing that pops up in my mind is it's got to make you uncomfortable. If it's comfortable, it's the you that's trying to use it as a drug. It's got to be uncomfortable. At some point, it can actually bring you some peace and you, look and you can look forward to it. But it's got to make you uncomfortable initially. And you should see how it's affecting you in your everyday life. Is it softening you or hardening you? In my experience with having had a lot of experience in different, whether meditation techniques or, let's say, Zen or martial arts, a lot of these things were just band-aids for my wounding that actually made me harder. One of the things that I talk about is how in my experience of observing people is we actually get attracted to things that aren't necessarily good for us. So if a very hard person will go through a very hard practice, so I would say actually put yourself in positions that aren't comfortable. Put yourself into situations that aren't comfortable. So if you're an uber-rigid person, Zen is probably not the best practice for you. If you have no boundaries, you know, loosey-goosey, Zen is probably the perfect practice for you. Um, put yourself in situations that are uncomfortable, but ultimately the fragrance is how you tell what the flower is. And that's what you go by. So part of it would be just to sit down and take an honest inventory or have your friends and sit with them and have them take an honest in inventory for you. Remember that we're a culture of addicts. So I, I've, you know, I've lived here for my whole adult life. I can't talk about the world. But certainly in America, we're a culture of addicts. So our spirituality, our spiritual practice is a function of that. You know, people keep talking about, well, Buddha talked about the middle way. But I see so many Buddhists, the middle way is the farthest thing they're from because they're so rigid. They're so, and again, not to generalize, it's just my experience. So all of these things have to be take, taken into account. You don't even need to go look for spirituality on that level. What is the most difficult spiritual path? Being in relationship. And if it's not with a lover, with friendship, really being honest. We spend our whole lives in these masks protecting these masks to the point that we don't even realize we're wearing a mask right so anything that sheds that that softens that is really powerful now me and you have been doing that as mates for years we really face each other in a very loving way we call each other out hey you're really off here i see this here oh this is your caretaking that's more powerful than sitting in a hundred sittings not that you shouldn't sit because the sitting can actually give me an insight into myself that i can share with you but you need that as well. It's not, it shouldn't happen in a vacuum. So having one or two like-minded others on that level can be very, very helpful. And to me, one of the most powerful fragrances of spiritual work is the us and them, the thin, that, that line thins. There's less us and them. You know, like these people, it's all us. It's, we're, play, we're all playing for the same team. And I always say this too, we might not like everybody on a team, we certainly have to love everyone. There is no us and them. Us and them is, again, part of this energy. But, you know, when you have some cop at some demonstration bashing your head in with a baton, how can you practice that? 
because you go into like, I'm going to kill this bastard. But what, what, you know, it's that. It's, these are real things. It's very easy to sit on a cushion and be like, oh, it's all, it's all one, it's all one. When you can't pay your bills and your landlord's throwing you out, where is the us and them in that? So life throws plenty of places to practice these things. And I find spirituality goes into this fake, oh, it's all one, where you can see people want to strangle someone or throttle someone, but they're like, oh, it's all one. You're like, no, it's not true, man. You're angry right now because your landlord's throwing you out of the cop, just bash your head in. Or it's just forget about spirituality. That's bullshit. That's for wussies. It's all me against the world. So that's a very powerful thing to see where one's at. And one has to check oneself. Well, you're right. It's really unusual to find people who you can have an honest dialogue with. Like you were saying before, um, you ask people to say, how are you? The generic response is, oh, I'm great, or I'm fine. Actually telling people how you feel. Uh, to be honest, 90% of people don't want to know. More. Um, because it makes them uncomfortable. It makes them have to be present. Mm-hmm. Um, so a real trick is to find people. And it's not that easy because telling truth to a friend uh, can have ramifications which a lot of people won't want to face. Luckily, we don't face that because, uh, you know, I just beat the crap out of you if you disagree. Yeah, let me just, hold, uh, on that level, um, you know, a great, it's a very important point you're bringing up because you can really throw a bad wrench, an unreversible wrench into friendships or relationships. A great practice with that is to actually start with yourself. So if me and you are going to have a talk, instead of me coming and saying to you, hey, Graham, blah, 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 this is what I'm seeing in you, the really most powerful place, and this is very important relationships, come from I, because that actually discharges anything. So I come to go, I'm really having a difficult time with this. I'm stuck in this caretaking pattern, or I'm having this with my relationship. The I part actually makes sure... And this is what I was saying earlier on. We actually want to shift other people instead of putting the focus on us. And this is a no-brainer, but it's something that we all miss. Anytime you see something that annoys you in someone else, it's your shit. Do you know what I mean? You, you might love someone. You know, I love you, and I see you using drugs, and I'm like, hey, brother, here, you might try NA or try AA or something. But I say that once or twice, then I let it go. If I'm, like, really freaking out about it, that's my stuff. So this part of we actually have to allow people to experience their path without trying to change them. Anytime we're trying to change someone, it's our shit. It's our uncomfortableness, either with our helplessness, either with an issue that we haven't dealt with, but it's about us. So back to your point on that level, we have to really take it back to us. If you come from the eye, nothing can happen. Don't take people's inventory, which is very difficult. Easier with friendships, really hard in romantic relationships. And it really comes from helplessness. You know, we, we actually can't feel our helplessness. So that's, that's the typical person that just is trying to, like, boss everyone. They're just so anxious, and they actually can't hold that for themselves, so they try to change it to everyone else. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to kind of clean your house by cleaning everybody else's house. You know, go to your own house and dust and clean and mop your own home. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Luckily, I have none of those problems at all. Yeah. Um, Checks in the mail. Yeah. Um, so... Back, uh, we were back a, a little minute ago, and we were talking about um, spiritual practices. Um, the way I see things are changing is this: for us, there seems to be uh, the death of the guru. Mm. Um, there are no um, gurus who can really appear now without either looking like they're a threat. Well, they've always looked like a threat. Looking like we can tear them down very quickly, we have too many um, charlatans and or the whole beautiful way they've constructed the conspiracy theory, um, you're a nut, in the, means the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the ego-led cults don't seem to really figure in what can work now. Am I, am I hit on the right path with all this? Because I feel that we've changed... And with this, there's, there's no, doesn't seem to be a Jesus or a Gandhi that would be able to work now. It's a time of, um, you know, in a time of hyper-individuation, it's a time of self-responsibility. Mm. So hyper-individuation isn't all negative. The way it comes off that it's negative, but there is a positive side to that, which is there's a time of self-responsibility. 
So we have to actually take responsibility for ourselves. One can never underestimate people's need to give up power. You know, one of the ways that we, we deal with this anxiety that we were talking about, this is how fascism works. This is how people kill each other over religion, is that we actually give our power over to either a dead entity or dead object. It can be philosophical issues or it can be the guru. So we actually give that up as a way of not feeling anxiety. It's how we perpetuate this myth that we're infinite by identifying with something that supposedly is infinite. So that part, that's always a danger for humanity. But I agree with you. I mean, it's interesting what's going on right now in the States anyway. The last couple of years with these um, rashes of people, you know, the guy out west that killed some people in his sweat lodge. I mean, it's in, in, insane stuff, right? Like having a plastic... Nipi, I mean, which is just insane. Um, this stuff recently with uh, Michael Roach, where you know a person ends up dying, and there's all this craziness going on. And it's not again about these individuals. It's you know these are all our brothers and sisters as a compassionate place, but also understanding this is us. So one can never underestimate one's blindness. You know, we live in a culture that has been taught to give power over. And we, we are always in that danger. We always have to watch it. Charismatic people throughout history, I mean, you know, they can charm your pants off and you give it away. I know I have in my own life. I'm a pretty smart guy. So one has to always watch that. But I do agree with you. It's a time of self. It's always been a time of self-caring, uh, self-responsibility. The danger now is the egomaniacal aspect of us is so strong that we can hide underneath that. You know, the ayahuasca thing is a great example, you know. Ayahuasca being this substance from the Amazon that people would take. It's a substance that breaks the vine of death, that breaks down the ego. Powerful stuff. You can have amazing uh, understandings of oneness. It really breaks down the ego structure. It's mind-blowing to me. I come across people all the time who will do it a couple of times a weekend. And nothing's really shifted in their lives. And they don't understand that nothing shifted in their lives. And they go back again and do it again. So they're addicted to this feeling of tearing things down. But they're still doing all the things they were doing before. You know, again, like I said before, a sign of a spiritual experience is that it actually shifts stuff in your character. It shifts stuff in your behavior. So their selfish acts still come up. They go out, they do the ayahuasca, wonderful. Then they're hooking up with people, having sex with them, which is insane we're in that mode. That mode is this experience where you actually are supposed to be experiencing yourself with a capital S to reform. So we can take anything and make it an ego experience, which is you know the danger of what we're going through. So you're right on one level, but that still doesn't um, absolve us from responsibility. And again, there's no right or wrong here. This is about what are you trying to do? You want to get high? It's a part of the human experience. It's fun to get high. Now, you can die as an addict. I'm not saying that. But, you know, part of the experience is but be clear about your intent. It's one of the things that I say over and over. You can do one action with two different intents, have two different results. Right? It's not about ayahuasca that's bad or good. You can go do ayahuasca with this intent of knowing yourself, have that intent, Go off in a corner of the room, puke your brains out, have your experience. Go fuck off in the woods, hang out with yourself for a day or two. Who are you? What's going on? Same thing with a different intent. Oh, there's, I don't want to be alone this weekend. There's people here. I want to get high because it's too painful. And we'll have a totally different experience. So it's the fear and love thing. We have to really be conscious of what is our intent in things. And all of this wrapped up in the reality that we're all very damaged beings. This is something that's not pleasant to look at. You know, we all have these damages. We all have these incredible gifts, and we're all very, very fucked up. And you got to walk that path in between and not deny that. And some people are just lost. I'm so fucked up. I'm so fucked up. It's not true. Everyone has these powerful gifts. They have to be aware of them. Society might or might not compensate you for it or honor it, but we all have them. But we're also all very damaged, and we want to act like we're not. And you know what? You might be in 40 years of therapy. And all you learn is just how to deal with it. I've been in therapy since I was 18 or 19. I'm a 50-year-old guy. It's incredible how certain patterns are just there. All that's happened is that I'm aware, I'm aware of them. I'll even make the same mistakes, but my awareness is like, oh, here, I, so instead of catching it 10 years, I catch it in, in a week, a month. So this idea that we're moving towards some perfection is not true, which to circle this all back around, it comes to, we come to spirituality out of pain. And we never really address that. 
very few people go like, my life is great. I actually want to check this out. It's, I have success and success is not working. Mostly, I can't have success, I'm going to go here. It comes from a place of lack, a place of pain. That has to be addressed. I mean, there's an issue here almost in the idea of that there's a depression where nothing on this realm can really scratch this itch. It can temporarily give you a little bit of a scratch, but it can't really scratch it. And we're trying to scratch it with spirituality. But sometimes just being aware that we have an itch solves the problem. In over time, it starts, you go realize, oh, this food, it's this, it's actually the sun, it's actually this medication. The first and foremost thing is become aware that you have an itch. Most of us don't even want to get to that. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking a lot about advertising and how we package and uh, culture and how it taps into fear and how the advertising and news stories get ratings by making us unsafe, making us basically fearful. Um, How is it manifesting? What do you see going on around with the fear in, in your practice and in the bigger world? Well, there's definitely, it seems to be amped up. I mean, again, let's not forget we're living in a culture, as most cultures, where advertising is one piece of it, but also from a nationalistic perspective, fear has been used to unify. So it was fear of the Russians, and it was fear of the Chinese, and it was fear of the Germans and the Japanese, and radiation, and World War II, and now, you know, 2012, and FEMA camp. I mean, fear is definitely like this cohesive ugly glue I definitely see people being more afraid now because that's part of the gift and fear of what's happening in terms of the economy and all that but again it comes back to fear is our survival state remember how we're designed you know fight or flight is basically how we're designed to deal with things so as stress comes which used to be a lion now it's your thoughts either fight this thing or you run away, the flight bit. So this fear has really negative consequences um, for our physical body, for our emotional state, for our relationships, for everything. One deals with it the way one deals with everything else, which is one thing we never do in our culture, which is being the moment. You have to deal with these things by actually being present and being in the moment with it. How do we deal with it? By numbing out, which actually shoves it down. So one thing that I've noticed being a clinician all these years is if I can actually, if fear comes in, I take a couple of deep breaths, I feel my hands, feel my feet, I just drop into myself. So this forces me to be in the moment. The interesting thing about being in the moment is when we have these fear issues come up, we want to know what we have to do in the next 10 miles. Part of what's always true, but seems to be particularly true now, is that we only are being told from our internal self the next one or two steps. Then we take those next one or two steps, and we're told about the next two or three steps. So a lot of us get overwhelmed, you know, like, oh, I lost my job. What do I got to do? I got to move to a different city. Just wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. Feel your body, slow down. So being in a moment is really the answer to the fear and seeing what the next level is. But that's something that has to be practiced. Do you know what I mean? When there's a fire in your house, it's very difficult to keep calm. But if you're practicing keeping calm, then when the fire comes, you'll respond to it differently. But to actually start trying to keep calm when there's actually fire and explosions is very, very difficult. Part of this uh, fear thing, too, you know, we have to um, be okay with not knowing everything all at once. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're in this very binary mode in our culture. Yes, no. You know, maybe doesn't even exist in our in in our worldview. Everything has to be just like yes, no, as a way of navigating these waters. We have to really be comfortable with that middle road, which again, none of us like. Which is again, addiction. Addiction is that whole yes, no thing, which is how our culture runs. Um, we have to kind of stay in this don't know place with no timeline. Mm. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. That what I find is um, because the tears of uh, day-to-day to to global fear Mm -hmm. is so massive that there's a paralysis Mm -hmm. that people feel that they have no ability to overcome their fear, they have no ability to overcome their present circumstances. 
And to even make that first step means if they go on the road to trying to help themselves, they'll realize the magnitude of the work ahead. How do you overcome the sen sensation of taking on the whole? I mean, is it like you were saying, the day-to-day, -day, the small steps? The fire has to get hot enough that you get off your ass. So we can't worry about other people. Let's take this to ourselves. How do we get to that point? It has to get uncomfortable enough. And again, something that blows my mind, having treated 15, 20,000 people, is how high our threshold to pain is, how much fire we can actually take. We can get a third-degree burn on our ass and still sit on that fire. So we can't worry about other people. We worry about ourselves in terms of when the pain is bad enough, we make a move. And the way we work with not being overwhelmed is by actually looking and taking it a step at a time, not looking too far down the road. It's really taking it a step at a time on that level. This is the times that we're, we're living under right now, where we're actually being forced to do that. Ramakrishna had this uh, lovely saying that you look for spirituality or you pursue spirituality like someone whose hair is on fire looking for a lake. Do you know what I mean? So if you're kind of walking around, I'd like to go to, you know, I live upstate New York. I like to go to a lake. Well, I can, you know, be there for 10 years and I'll look for a lake. If my hair is on fire, you better believe I'll find a lake really quickly. So that's a really beautiful image. Once we get pushed, we do it. And again, never underestimate our love of the pain. We can actually tolerate it exactly to your point because we don't know what's on the other side and because it is so overwhelming. So it starts with a step at a time. But to me, the biggest step, the most simple and the most difficult, start with five minutes a day, drop your breathing down, feel your body like we went through. You know, just literally get into your body. It's so difficult initially because you tap into how much anxiety is in your body, and that's everyone. We can mask it with these different things, but anxieties are primal level. I come across people all the time, and, you know, I'm not Tom Cruise. I'm not against medication. I'm not into that whole thing, although majority of medication is definitely misused in our culture. But I treat people who are on so many anti-anxiety and antidepressants where they actually can barely function, and that's just an externalization of what we all do, whether it's through food or Internet or reading or music where we actually disconnect and I'll give them a treatment with putting needles in them and they actually get teary and I have this one man who I've worked for a short period of time and keeps saying to me look my eyes water when you treat me I'm like no mate that's not water you're crying I mean it's, it's like funny and it's like devastatingly sad I mean it's funny right but it's also like and a lovely man and a bright man and not a young man you know probably 10 years down me in his 60s and he doesn't connect that but he's not a freak. That's a majority of us, where that's actually his experience. And he's on six medication, right? And, yes, he probably would have committed suicide if he wasn't on those medication. I'm not, again. But he's not really living. He's not even functioning. He's just in the zombie state. And, again, no judgment there. That's a tremendous amount of pain. You know, you can laugh at someone who spends five hours a day jerking off on the Internet. That's an intense amount of pain. You can judge someone who shoots 10 bags of dope, intense amount of pain. You can judge someone who puts their finger down their throat or doesn't eat, intense amount of pain. I can go on and on and on, shopping, what have you, plastic surgery. It's all abject terror. It's abject terror and anxiety towards dying. So we have to face that. It's a very heroic thing. The spiritual path truly examined, truly walked on is incredibly heroic it's very very difficult to face oneself but i've also observed a lot of people die if you die the way you live so this work has to be done it can be pushed aside in my experience and you know there are people who will be totally fine to live their whole lives and they'll never ask these questions and that's fine god bless them more power to them for suckers like me and you and the people who are listening to this it's not an option you know, it's that Indian saying, your head's already in the tiger's mouth. We we're pulled to this thing like moths of phlegm. It's out of our control. The question is, how can we then address it in a way that actually eases our pain as opposed to adds to it? You're talking about your responsibility to yourself and how you need to uh, not worry about other people. 
This brings us into the idea of caretaking and relationships um, and the uh, healthy, non-healthy aspects of it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's interesting you talk about caretaking because I have a post-PhD degree in caretaking, and you're right there with me and my fellow <laughs> studious caretaking maestro. And it's how people like me and you have hidden. It's how people like me and you were assigned that role and took on that role by being hyper-aware, hyper-anxious little boys. It's how people like me and you actually push away the fact that we have needs by putting them on other people and then trying to fix it, as what I was saying before, about sort of cleaning your own space. So it's a way of actually not being in a relationship. So in my experience, having been in long-term relationships several times, many times, we actually, myself, you, we actually stay out of connection. You know, caretaking looks so amazing from the outside. Someone can be like, oh, Graham, what a great bloke. Look what he's doing. But actually, it's a way of not being in a relationship. People really want us. It's very common in caretaking situations where the other person actually gets angry. And you're like, well, I'm paying the rent. I paid for your school. How can you get angry? Because people want us. They don't want the caretaking. Now, their wounded child will take the caretaking very happily because it allows them to collapse. But really, on an unconscious level, people know that they're not being in a relationship and they're angry. So there's nurturing versus caretaking. That's the part that has to really be differentiated. Nurturing really, um, it has no agenda. Caretaking has an agenda. Caretaking says, I want to fix you. Caretaking says, I want to fix you because you're not okay the way you are. I want to fix you. You're not okay the way you are because actually I don't feel okay in myself, so I'm going to project that not okayness on you, and I'm going to try to fix you. Um, so if you're getting pissed, if you're getting frustrated, um, you're caretaking, which is really trying to f- heal yourself by trying to fix another, which is impossible. Nurturing is very different. I've been taught by the women in my life over a period of time, very slowly, being the thick-headed jerk that I am, that I've been hiding with caretaking. So here I am as a 50-year-old man trying to learn the difference between nurturing and caretaking, and it's a very powerful thing. And it's amazing because when you nurture, it's like applying olive oil to something. And when you're caretaking, is like throwing sand into the same machine. The sand just grinds it down to a halt. The olive oil just makes everything fun- function more smoothly, both internally and externally. So I would say in all these relationships, one has to really examine, am I caretaking, am I, for those of us who have that role. And vice versa, for someone who has the role of the one who gets taken care of, they have to really learn to teach their partner or their friend or their parent, you know, I don't need caretaking, I need to be nurtured. That actually is what helps me. So if you find yourself, not that I ever have, of course, in a caretaking relationship, (laughs) How do you um, manage to change that dynamic? Because when both parties are used to that role, Mm -hmm. um, it's all very well to say, okay, I'm not caretaking anymore. Mm -hmm. It can be perceived as being a bit of an affront to the other person when they're used to one style of behavior, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you have to be able to say no. How, how How do you feel about that? Yeah, I'm sure you've read about caretaking in books, it sounds like. Um, It's a great question because this question doesn't just apply to personal or intimate relationships and caretaking. It applies to everything. So we all have these patterns which are not really our true self. And we start doing spiritual work and we start waking up. One of the most common, if not the most common questions, is exactly what you just asked. I'm in a situation. I've been with this man, with this woman for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I have this friend. I have this job. And I'm realizing now it's killing me. And I can't do this. If you just jump out of it, in my experience, unless you're very, very clear, which is very rare, you actually will repeat it with a different person. So just dumping it onto... And I'm not saying stay on it for another 10 years. You might stay on it another month, and then it will shift. But you have to start with shifting that. And one has to remember this because this is part of what comes up constantly right now. People are having these awakenings 
realizing they've been, you know, bent over. They don't need to bend over. They need to stand straight. But then the first question becomes, what about my partner? What about my job? What about the situation? The truth that I've observed is if you're true to yourself, not from an ego place, because if you're true to yourself from an ego place and you have a relationship and you really want to fuck your best friend's partner, that's the ego. You can really sell it to yourself like this is really my highest. No. I'm talking from a deep internal place, and that a deep in- internal place never harms other people. That's a common thing. That's a good sort of fragrance of that. You have to be true to yourself. It actually helps everyone around. So this is a very hard thing to remember. If you're a caretaker, it's not about the other person. It's about you. To give that up, to give that idea of yourself as a person who has no needs, that can totally provide those things, that's really what you're up against. It's not about your partner. But it is a process, not an event. This is a very hard thing. You can have this awareness. For me, I had this awareness maybe in my 20s. I'm really still, still sorting it out, and it has led to a lot of heart pain in my own experience of marriages that didn't work out, friendships that didn't work out. So I don't think my experience is unique. What happens is one actually starts clearing a lot of relationships and clear, breaking a lot of things, and some of them not gracefully at all because one's learning, and then you start reforming them at a different level. But turmoil is a part of it. And depending how sick you are in terms of your addiction, which for most of us is pretty sick, it's pretty explosive. But that's where the sitting and being with yourself. One thing that happens in these situations, I know it certainly has in mind, there is undue stress put onto the relationship that needs to be really put towards oneself. So I can come and tell my partner, God damn it, I'm tired of this bullshit, I'm tired of taking care of you. And the person can be like, well, no one asked you, you did it. Then I have to look at that but like, whoa, they're actually right. I did this. This is about me towards me, not about me externally. So there's a level of self-responsibility that's very, very painful. But your question applies to everything. You know, what about friendships that we've been in for a long time? Where our mate just calls us when they need something, when they need some money, and then they don't go away. Well, that was perfect. Why do we do that? Me and you have done that, both of us. Why? Because you don't have to be intimate. Then you have a relationship like me and you, where it's actually intimate and you reveal yourself. It's very lovely. But that takes a long time, right? We didn't really get into something like this till our 40s. So having compassion on that. But when you do something like me and you have had for long, it's kind of then difficult to have faker rela- more fake relationships. At the same, same time, with a caretaking relationship, you know, you don't have to be that intimate with everyone. There are people you want to go and pick up a game of ball or you want to go and have a dinner with. You know, it doesn't all have to be that intimate. In my experience, you have a couple of people in your life. One is amazing. Two is incredible. Where you can be that honest, it makes the other ones more manageable. And you actually don't want to have the need for it. It's sort of like when you eat clean. You just don't have a desire to eat sugar all day or smoke all day or drink. It's the same thing. It kind of drops away by itself. But that explosive part of it, if you put the focus on you and your responsibility, it makes it easier. But damn the torpedoes. I mean, you've done it a certain way. If you're not taking care of yourself, the relationship will fail anyway. I treat people all the time who've been with someone 20, 30 years. That's not a sign of health. You know, I've been with people who've been with someone two, three years and they've had an explosive breakup, and that's not a sign of health. But I've been with people, either they've been together 20 or 30 years or they've had an explosive breakup and they've really shifted from it. That's a sign of health. How honest are we with ourselves? So we're drawing to a close. So one thing which is really difficult to kind of wrangle is how, how would you sum up the spiritual path it's a it's a difficult one to answer in one I would say there's different aspects to it I would say learn how to sit and make friends with your grief and anxiety um, make it your friend because all that charge has a lot of information for you so stop running away from that. I would say be aware where you actually love your pain. Um, and I would say get out of this idea that spirituality is about perfection. That it's not about being perfect. It's not about actually anything close to that. It's actually remembering our wholeness with all our damage and with all our strengths. Be aware of your weaknesses. We all have them, this damage, whether they're vasanas, these body-mind tendencies that are passed on through lifetimes, or their childhood damage and stuff that we carry for our familial lineage. 
And the same thing with strengths. Be aware of your strengths. What are they? And make room for humanity. The biggest confusion, the thing that we try to push away, which again connects to the anxiety, is this idea that we're not human. We want to be superhuman. We give up a lot to be in these bodies and have these experiences. Realize the specialness of it and all the pain and all of that. Um, the death practice that I talk about is something I use myself to constantly remember my humanness and to connect with it. That's fantastic. Thank you, Abdi. Um, signing off. Thank you for your time. I think immigration is here to take you away now. <laughs>